0: and hello there peter mansbridge here you are just moments away from the latest episode of the bridge we're back season four of the bridge is about to begin and hello there your summer was a good one i hope my summer was, was kind of an odd one july was great July was a great summer for me. I turned 75. was very active. was quite excited by it all. Then on July 31st, the last day of July, I was playing golf with my son, Will. And I don't know, something snapped. Something happened. I didn't even realize it at the time. But somehow, on that day, golfing, I uh, tore some ligaments in my ankle. And uh, that made August... (laughs) Well, let's say a hobbly month. I spent a lot of time with a cane. I felt like I was the way you're supposed to feel, I guess, or at least they, they tell you you should feel when you're 75, a little vulnerable. I was hobbling around. Um, and as a result, you know, I, I wasn't able to get the kind of exercise that I'm used to um, in uh, throughout August. But it's September now, and that's all kind of behind me. There's still a little... A little tenderness in the ankle, but I'm working on it. I've taken the physio and I'm feeling better. Okay? Um, But other than that, (laughs) just don't want to talk about me. The summer was, well, you know, I guess the main headline was wildfires. And, my gosh, some of the communities and what they've been through and what some are still going through is, well, it's incredible when you see what's happened. You know, we've made a name for ourselves around the world because of wildfires and because of the smoke that's collected in the skies and moved across the, the country and outside of the country. So those wildfires have been a challenge uh, for so many people. There's been flooding in parts of the country, which sounds odd. You know, wildfires and flooding. Doesn't seem to go together, but nevertheless, that's what's happened. So those challenges have been placed by, uh, been faced by literally hundreds of thousands of Canadians uh, throughout the summer of twenty three. But there have been other things uh, as well. The, uh, the debate around climate change has come up once again. The deniers kind of made a bit of a comeback through the summer. Not quite sure how that happened. I mean, I I have no time for deniers, but that is, that's my position. Uh, and we're not going to get into that right here, right now. But just to say that the climate change discussion and what falls out of it, the branches of it, including carbon tax, uh, have all been uh, part of the uh, debate this summer. The political debate, goes on. The Conservatives have a huge lead at the moment, but it's the summer. And how reflective of that are these numbers? Are these the real numbers? And if they are, then the Liberals have every reason to be absolutely terrified about what may happen to them. Um, if it's summer, in a summer of no election, and taking polling numbers, well, then you sort of say, well, can we wait till we're actually back in the season and let's see what happens? All those things are at play on politics, as they often are. The housing issue, interest rates, inflation, the fact we don't have enough houses for the current population, let alone the expected increase in population of half a million a year, with the new immigration totals is a dominant factor. I know that uh, I know the ranter is working on his first rant of the new season uh, coming up on Thursday. I think he's planning to do something on housing. So all those issues at play as a result of this summer and there are others and I you know I know some of you will write in and say what about this or what about that? I hear you. There's one other thing, though, that in some ways I found it the summer of. I found it the summer of the woman. Um, so many stories we talked about through the summer, some were like legitimate front-page stories, others were front-page of perhaps the sports section or the entertainment section, but they were they gave new momentum to the whole issue of women's place in our society. I mean, can you imagine 10 years ago, the Women's World Soccer Championships, World Cup of Soccer for Women, being a dominant story? It was a dominant story, not just here, but in different parts of the world. And some of the women's players became national figures beyond the obvious ones that we've witnessed in the last few years. But women's soccer was a huge story and continues to be as a result of, you know the story of the, the head of the Spanish Soccer Federation uh, kissing full on on the lips one of the Spanish uh, Women's Cup players and how that uh, has taken hold and become a, a fairly important issue for a lot of people. Not so important for others, but it is the clash of ideas around the movement of of this story. But it was more than World Cup soccer. It was something as what seems to be rather simple, a concert tour going on across the United States and eventually in different parts of the world, including Canada, by Taylor Swift who has become this, like, mega performer. And you look at the crowds, and you, you can't ignore it if you follow Instagram or what have you. It's just, like, full of clips from these concerts where there's 60, 70, 80,000 people packed in. The overwhelming majority are women, many young women. And it's, you know, it's reminiscent of the, the screaming crowds that used to follow the Beatles, except here you can actually understand the words that are being sung by this crowd of 20, 30, 50, 60, 70,000 people, as opposed to those early Beatles concerts, the first ones to be held in stadiums, like the, I think it was the Shea Stadium concert in New York City in whenever that was, 65 or something like that, where you couldn't understand a word. Even the, the Beatles themselves said they couldn't hear themselves singing. There was just screaming. That's not what happens at the Taylor Swift concert. And all the songs, or many of the songs, are related to issues for women. Could be about a date, could be about society, could be about any number of different things. But that Taylor Swift... Concert tour is quite something. It's coming to Canada. Six concerts, they're sold out, and the tickets are selling for, you know, multiple times more than their value or their their cost. And these concerts in Toronto, the six nights in a row, are not even until November. Not this November, next November. And there are many concerts uh, happening before that. Here's the last one I find particularly of interest to to add to this issue of um, the year of the woman or the summer of the woman. I don't know what you've been watching on television this summer. One of the things I watched was called Special Ops, Lioness. It's a special operations show, Right? Commandos, in the dead of night, doing their thing. Now, we've all heard about commandos. Canada has its own Special Operations Command. And JTF-2 is the sort of pointed end of that. I know a little bit about that because I'm the honorary colonel of that command. And when I say I know a little about it, I I emphasize the word little. I know a little. There's only so much they can tell me in my honorary role. But it was one of them who told me when I was up at Petawawa the, uh, the other day, talking with some of the troops. It was one of them who told me, you know, you should really watch this show. It's for real. And I... I sort of said, come on, it's Hollywood, what are they? He said, no, 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 it's for real, it's really well done. So I watched it, and I did find it quite good. But one of the things that is dominant about it is the key roles in this commando unit, if you want to call it that, are all women. The lead operative is a woman. The leader of the unit is a woman. The um, deputy head of the CIA is a woman who controls this unit. It's quite something to watch that and to realize, not only was that the way it was done, it was the most popular cable show of the summer, by far. They're trying to decide now whether to give it a second season. I'm sure they will. One of the problems, obviously, is the writers' strike and when they can get around to shooting things. Anyway, there are my little rants, opening rants about the summer. But this is Tuesday of week one of season four of The Bridge. And what happens on Tuesday? What happens is we bring Brian Stewart in. Brian, longtime friend, longtime colleague, longtime foreign correspondent, war correspondent, has been our resource on trying to tell the story of Ukraine. And what's been going on there for, well, we're coming up soon, another couple of months on the second anniversary of the war in Ukraine since the Russian invasion. Brian has been our sort of kind of guiding light on what to believe, what not to believe, where things stand, how's this war playing out. He draws on his vast experience uncovering issues like this, and we're awfully lucky to have him. So going to take a quick break. When we come back, Brian Stewart on the Ukraine war. And welcome back. You're listening to uh, The Bridge on Sirius XM, channel 167, Canada Talks. Um, or on your favorite podcast platform. We're happier joining us uh, the week ahead. Starts tomorrow. Bruce Anderson will be by with smoke, mirrors, and the truth. Thursday is your turn. So if you have thoughts that you'd like to share with us, send them in now, whether it's on some of my opening remarks or whether it's on what Brian has to say coming up here on the bridge. Um, The Random Ranter will be by as well. And as I think I hinted at earlier, I think he's going to talk about housing. So that's important. All right. Enough of me. Let's get to Brian Stewart and his opening thoughts on season four of the bridge on the war in Ukraine. So, Brian, clearly you have been missed. Uh, If you just read my mail, uh, every week there have been letters coming into the bridge saying, where's Brian Stewart? I need my Ukraine fix. I don't trust anything else (laughs) that's out there. which Which is a very nice compliment to you. Did you have a good break? Did you have a good summer?
1: Yeah, it's been very good.
0: Yeah,
1: I've been doing a lot of writing, but apart from that, it's been a really good summer.
0: For those uh, who are wondering and have been asking, was Brian ever going to write a book? He is writing a book. Can't say any more than that, other than he's (laughs) writing a book. (laughs) So uh, if, uh, and I've known this guy for uh, nearly half a century and I uh, I know how well he writes so it's I I know it's going to be a good book. Um, yeah. all right, let's uh let's get at it. The uh, subject yeah. at hand of course is the war in Ukraine. Uh and a summer where we have been we had been waiting throughout this year for the Ukrainian offensive to take back land they'd lost to uh Russia in the uh, uh previous time ever since the invasion. So uh, why don't we start in a general way of what's, what's the state of the war as we enter the fall of 2023, and how has that changed since the last time we talked?
1: Well, the state of the war is that we have had now almost three brutal months of the uh, Ukrainian counteroffensive. Uh, Undergone, going There have been advances, but not as many advances as was hoped. But the key thing right now is uh, both sides have reached a kind of state of uh, attritional war. They, the Ukrainians are trying to attrit the Russian forces, cause as many casualties as possible, wear them down. The, the Russians, of course, on defense, are trying exactly the same thing on the Ukrainians, wearing them down. And like two battlers in a slugfest. Both sides have taken enormous casualties. Both sides have been weakened by the casualties. And we have to wonder at this stage how strong the will is. It comes down to a question of, on one hand, will, which side has the most will to win? And the second one is, how are the reserve, reserves? Because without reserves, neither side is going to be able to stay in this slug fist much longer. And there's doubts and worries about the reserves on both sides. There's a feeling they're really starting to get to the bottom of each one's barrel in terms of coming up with new units to go into the fight.
0: And, and not just units, I guess, but uh, but weapons and ammunition as well. Because weren't we worried about that in the spring, especially on the Ukrainian side, that they were going to run out of arms?
1: Exactly. And, you know, one has to say one can't blame this on Western indifference or Western reasons. Because uh, when I say blame this, I mean uh, trying to explain the lack of more uh, territory taken. Uh, but it has been faulty in many ways. It's been jerky. Hard to rely upon. They, I think the Western allies, Canada included, but certainly the United States, failed to realize how much advance planning they had to put into this. Orders should have gone. That should have gone out a year and a half ago. Only went out six months ago. That kind of, um, you know, when Biden said. Famously, I think in the fall, uh, the Ukrainians don't need F-16s. Well, now they do need F-16s, but it's going to take well into next year probably before they can actually fly them over Ukraine. So that kind of slow-moving, jerky response from the West has been partially responsible, but other things have probably been more responsible.
0: Well, let's get to those. To, To try and understand the kind of limited gains uh, that Ukraine has made so far. How how would you explain that?
1: Yeah, I would I would like to put the rider down that Ukraine has been advancing. Uh, they, there's no question. It is, it is winning back more territory. It's got a bit more momentum going now, so it's starting to take back more territory at a time. It just hasn't had the great breakthrough that a lot of people probably way over optimistically expected. Uh, I, I, I put it in perspective. I made the point well back, I think in mid May, that it would come down to two questions. Would the Russians be as bad on defense as they were in offense? And would the Ukrainians be as good on offense as they were on defense? It turns out that, in fact, the Russians are much better at defense than they were at offense. And the Ukrainians aren't quite as good at offense as they were at defense. Now to explain this better, uh, what the Ukrainians have run into is a a phenomenal a formidable, uh formidable powerful series of Russian defensive lines. Three main ones so the second one is, is the key to breakthrough but three lines of defense they've had a, a year in many places to dig in, uh, dig them well, put thousands of mines out in front of each position. Um, move up artillery, pre-position the artillery. No Western army uh, could do any better than the Ukrainians have been doing uh, without air superiority, which the West would count on. But the Ukrainians haven't had air superiority or anything like it. So they've had to fight an enormously difficult uh, battle um, against Russian defenses, which are very, very good, very dogged in many areas the russians are holding in and digging in and holding lines much better than than many anticipated and it's been very intelligently laid out a lot of the defense so it's trying to do that without the critical thing that we would demand which was air superiority Um, but the ukrainians have replied to this dilemma is using their artillery to massively pound the Russians behind the lines, to, to almost take the place of the air superior that we would want. Uh, and they, that, that is meant to attrit the Russians, wear them down. But they've had to make attacks uh, partially out of do- their own doctrine, but partially out of necessity, with very small units. We said, I think almost a year ago, that in this war, it was going to be very, very difficult to mass armor, to create great masses of armor together for a big punch of the World War II variety we all were used to in newsreels and films and cinema, what have you that's very difficult now because the russians have satellites too they have all sorts of listening devices they have artillery not as accurate as the ukrainian but accurate enough to take out masses of armor if they mask so what the ukrainians have been doing is fighting small units company size maybe even less we're talking fighting on a front with 20 30 maybe maybe up to 100 soldiers. On a front that we would normally employ hundreds, even thousands, in taking this bit by bit by bit step, trying to wear down the Russians, and uh, that is obviously called for a very slow process. The other element that has slowed them down is training. We thought that giving Ukrainian brigades a lot, you know, three months of solid training to be a fighting brigade might be enough. It's not even close to be enough. I mean, the brigade, which is 5,000 troops, is made made up of incredibly complex uh, units of artillery, of armor, of intelligence, of supply, of logistics, uh, of of various fighting units working together. It's incredibly complex. It can take up to a year or more uh, to to, uh, actually work effectively. And the Ukrainians simply haven't had the time to do that properly. So they're falling back on your old skill, which is maneuver by smaller units. And they had, that they'd be really quite successful in, in several areas.
0: Okay. I... I just
1: remind people you know, when the Canadian Army, remember, went overseas in September 1939, this month of 1939, uh, the Canadian troops were really not in action for well over a year and a half. I think it was two years, diap. 1942, August 1942. So all that time was spent training in England. Well, what if they had had just three months of training and then were thrown into action? You can imagine how difficult it
0: Some of those English towns where they, where they were training would wish the Canadians had been heading off a little <laughs> sooner. Yeah, I lived near
1: on one leatherhead for four <laughs> years, so I used yeah. to get the feet.
0: Um, let me, I, I just want to be clear on this because You made the point a few moments ago that that Ukraine is, in fact, advancing. It may be much slower than some people had thought um, and slower than they thought, but they have been advancing. So it would be wrong, would it not, to describe things as being at a stalemate at the moment.
1: Yes, it's, it's not really a stalemate at all. I mean, every day, you, if you watch the bulletins come out, the Ukrainians have taken another hundred, you know, another kilometer here and a kilometer there. Uh, the other thing to remember is, you know, when you advance and start a, a bit of a breakthrough in one area, you don't just go straight ahead like General Patton or some kind of No crazy General Custer, you know, charging it through down deep into enemy lines. Because once you get through a certain enemy position, you have to start expanding your flanks as well. Otherwise, you're going to find yourself surrounded and trapped. So when the Ukrainians do make an advance, they then have to turn around and start expanding their sides. And that doesn't make big headlines that there were some gains on the east and the west of the advance underway. But the territory is... uh, uh, being recaptured and there's uh, evidence that they've already crossed the first line of defense which is very important Um, that is a line that was heavily fronted by mines and defensive elements of every kind now they're approaching in some areas the second line of defense so things are going to get progressively interesting probably over the next three to four weeks uh, there's a lot of anticipation now that the Ukrainians will start picking up the pace. They'll be confronting the second line of defense. If they break through that, then there's some real chance that they'll uh, they'll start moving at a faster, much deeper pace. However, that said, and I hope I'm not jumping ahead here, it's very, very unlikely they are going to meet the targets they had set earlier in the year of reaching the, you know, breaking the Russian front, hold. whole occupation in half by reaching the sea and then cutting off supply from south to north and what have you. That's probably not going to be achieved this year.
0: It sounds to me like you're thinking we're in for a really long haul on this conflict.
1: Yes, I think barring the quite unexpected, and gosh knows we've seen a few unexpected things in this war, so we say that term, we underline it, barring the unexpected, uh, really I would anticipate it goes well into 2024, and I would not be at all surprised if the war is not going on in 2025. I am more and more a military analysts now are concluding that's going to be the case, which, of course, raises a whole bunch of questions. Again, of national will, Russian will, Ukrainian will, and the will of Western allies and friends, which is going to be absolutely critical to Ukraine. Will that will hold up over a long term war? But very few people now are thinking this war can be wrapped up uh, this year or even by next spring or even next summer. I mean, it's just too much, much uh, territory to go, too much fighting yet to, to
0: be seen. You know, every, every few weeks or every month or so, we hear, you know, rumblings of, well, there are these talks going on in this city or by these leaders. Is there, is there any more movement on this, the idea of a negotiated settlement?
1: There's a lot more talk about it, but I don't see any movement really at all. And the problem is it falls into um, the bear pit when you start analyzing uh, what would be needed to get uh, talks underway. Um, It is said by many in the diplomatic area, if Ukraine was to make a breakthrough, a big breakthrough, and start heading toward the sea and start cutting the Russian occupation in half, It wouldn't want to negotiate. It would want to go on and win the whole bit. Why would it then negotiate when it's on the winning side? If, on the other hand, Ukraine is not able to break through and cut the Russians in half and make really spectacular advances, why would Moscow choose to negotiate? It would would hold on in hopes that Western will will cave, probably after the American election, they might think. But uh, it would not be in Russia's interest to negotiate. So at the moment, it looks like neither side uh, is in a position to uh, be ready to negotiate, and it will take very major movement or failure of movement uh, to get one side or the other uh, to say, "Okay, let's call this war to an end." Uh, the the will, of course, wars the longer they go on, the harder they are to end. <laughs> this we've seen this from World War One to Vietnam, you name it, that the more the one side loses troops and, and then has a cost put to the war, the less likely it is to call the war off and say, okay, we'll call it quits at this level, because the public will say, what? We lost all those men. I lost my relatives. I lost family members to get this. This is all we can get. We've got to give us a victory after this horrible uh, toll in blood the war has taken. So it gets harder all the time all to let to. into.
0: Any, uh, just before we move on to uh, one of our favorite topics of the last year, which is uh, the, the Wagner group and, and Prigozhin. Um, let me raise uh, this, this one question in terms of the art of warfare. Um, are there any things, any recent changes in, in, in what we've witnessed on the battlefield that are worth noting?
1: Well, I think uh, the the Russians certainly have been uh, uh, very adaptive and, and sort of changing their tactics a bit. They're showing much more intelligence in, in the way they hold lines. They're not giving up lines excessively fast, but they're not tied to holding them at all costs. We've seen them pull out of certain lines. So the, the Russians definitely have... Um, have uh have adapted more that way the ukrainians are still experimenting but some they're adopting new efforts in unconventional war we may call it that are very interesting i'd be noting the strikes deeper and deeper into russia Uh, not only the right that ukraine is firing at moscow and then military bases and the rest of it but they seem to have commando units operating quite daringly indeed inside russia which gives this a whole new twist as to what new targets might be involved in this war, what major infrastructure positions, say, the Russians may have, the Ukrainians will be going into inside uh, Russia, uh, what they might do to try and break civilian morale in Moscow, where it's so important. But it's a little island under itself, a big island under itself, I should say. Uh, so these, this is certainly a, a, a third a third, uh, sort of a third theater of war that is now, uh, be taking place.
0: Okay, let's let's talk Prigozhin for a moment. Um, first of all, you know a little bit of history. Whenever, you know we've uh, we've talked about the enemies of Putin within Russia. Uh, the story usually ends in, in, some, in, in, in some terms that the same way. Uh, something bad happens to this person. He ends up in prison for the rest of his life, or more likely he ends up uh, getting killed, dying in some fashion. There was even the story of the, the one Putin opponent who, who was in fact confined to a wheelchair in his apartment at the top of the apartment building he was living in, who went out a window in his wheelchair and was killed obviously when he when he hit the ground. Uh, now we have uh, Prigozhin, the leader of the uh, the Wagner group, uh, who ran the uh, aborted coup. Um, uh, in fact, like he wait, he waited till you and I were on holidays. It was like the day after we left on holidays right. before that happened. Uh, mm-hmm. But anyway, he you know he uh, he ran this coup. It didn't work. He gave up. Uh, and uh, it, it looked like he was going to somehow survive. Although most people were saying, boy, if I was him, I wouldn't get on an airplane. Well, he got on an airplane, his own airplane, with a bunch, of, right. his, uh, with a bunch of his colleagues from the Wagner group. And uh, the next thing you know, the, the, the plane is hurtling down to the, uh, the ground, c- uh, crashes, and everybody on board is killed. Now, is there any doubt in your mind what happened here?
1: Well, only in the sense that I think it's the overwhelming chances are, likelihood is that it was Putin's hand behind it all. But a part of me wonders if it wasn't the military leadership, which so detested Kogosian. And he attacked them all the time as incompetence, criminals, the rest of it. And their fury was just, uh, I think, uncontainable at the end. And who knows if this was a bomb placed on the plane, just like, you know, the, the... you know, plots against Hitler almost. Uh, there are many elements within the military who may have thought this guy's got the backing of uh, Putin, we'll never be able to get rid of him unless we get rid of him ourselves, maybe with the help of our good friends, the intelligence service, which also detested Prigozhin. So there were other enemies that may have brought him down. Um, so, But I think it was likely Putin, and I think it was what he felt he had to do after the international humiliation of indescribable force that he faced when Napoleon began a march on Moscow, I mean, you just don't recover from something like that. The whole world's talking about Putin seems weakened. Uh, how long is he before he gets shoved out? Uh, he can't control uh, units under his his very uh, hand. Um, I think this is was probably the. Not only get even attempt by putin but putin's attempt to say to the world you think for a second i'm weak look what happens to my enemies and i think one of the great things that all dictators and russia have always sought throughout history is to have a fear factor to be really feared um it's not just being mr nice guy you know not just being good with Crowds and the rest of it, that's of, of no use to them usually. But they must be feared, feared within the military, feared within uh, the intelligence services, and feared within the largest country on earth. Remember how hard it is, basically, to run a nation that is a, one and a, a half size larger still in Canada uh, with not that great a population. You have to—you so many different units and elements and ethnic groups and what have you. Uh, fear is a factor that he will be, um, I think, applauded for in the right-wing nationalist circles, where he is—he's uh, very dependent on. He needs their support, probably their support more than any other.
0: Is Putin safe now? With Prigozhin gone, uh,
1: I wouldn't say his—I his, uh, wouldn't say his term is safe. I would, uh, I would think. I don't think he's going to be bumped off. I think he might be persuaded to take a health leave, something Mm -hmm. like that, something a little more genteel. (laughs) Go like, you know, like like Yeltsin or or Gorbachev or something. Um, However, he has an election in March. That's something to keep our eye on. Putin is seems determined to. He's going to win that election, and once he wins it, he's going to probably have term limits to his 150 or something. In any case. (laughs) He's, uh, I think he is safe. I think he's. Uh, he's got just enough strength. And I think a lot of people in Russia, not to mention a lot of people in the outside world, frankly, would rather have Putin than the unknown. I mean, not many people right now are saying, let's bring in some new leader, maybe from the right-wing extreme nationalist group, uh, to be leader of Russia or from the military. Uh, maybe it's better just to have him than to go with the unknown. Um but I don't know, there, there are some people, uh, some very thoughtful analysts who think the West made a really big mistake when we took away from Putin the threat of regime, regime change. When we said we made it very clear, oh, no, 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 forget what Biden has to say with a slip of the tongue. We're not out to change <clears throat> Putin's rule in Russia at all. That took away one of the lever, lever points, leverage points, I should say. Uh, against the Kremlin. And whether that was smart or not, I don't know. I, I haven't got a strong opinion on that. But uh, I think he feels confident. I think he feels he's going to win the election in March. And I think he uh, he thinks long-term, maybe a good buddy in the United States of his will come to power and all this will get settled out, which will make, him look, uh, you know, make Russia look good again. However, bottom line, let's not forget one critical thing. However, this war turns out, Russia has already lost. You know, what they've lost in national prestige, international prestige, what they've lost in terms of their military prowess, what they've lost in terms of self-confidence, uh, what they've lost in terms of a stronger NATO and a more united West, all of that figures in the loss column for Russia. So there won't be a victory out here for Russia. Unfortunately, there could still be a defeat for Ukraine.
0: Last quick point: When um, when we kind of left these discussions in the uh, the late spring and the early part of the summer, one of the things you were telling us about was that the the voices, the anti-Putin voices, had more of a audience and were able to um, put out their message, you know, in, in various forms in a way they'd never had never done before. I'm wondering in the post-Pergosian period whether that's changed at all.
1: Well, there's a, I, there's a noticeable, a little somewhat more caution, but most of the outspokenness now, and there's still a lot of it on these military blogs, you know, military bloggers, uh, is aimed at the, the military. I mean, they don't take on Putin. They say, you know, the, the conduct of this war is really shocking. We we're not getting enough ammo in. We're not uh, getting reserves in. We, have, we need more people. Our generals are slack. They're not winning. They're fools, what have you. That's still going out over the air. I mean, it's it's hard to imagine I can't think of another dictatorship of a, a Russian scale where that kind of voice has been allowed to hammer away at, you know, one of the main fists of the regime, which is the military. It's it's just quite an extraordinary event. But I think Putin wants again to ram home the message. There's lots to blame in this war, but don't look at me. I'm not to blame. You know, from everything I hear, it's all of my generals. You know, they seem to be a hopeless loud, but some of them are disappearing too, after all.
0: Well, speaking of uh, voices that like to be listened to um, and like to be heard, um, yours has been one that uh, many of our listeners have have talked about this uh, summer, saying, where's Brian? Want to hear what he has to say? Well, today was a great snapshot of where we stand on the uh, Ukraine-Russia war, and uh, we thank you for it, Brian. We'll talk to you again another week. Okay, Peter. Thanks very much. Brian Stewart launching us into uh, the fall of 2023 and his latest thoughts on the situation in Ukraine. couple of footnotes um, out of that conversation. Uh, first of all, when, when Brian uses the term an election, Putin running for election or re-election, he uses that term loosely. I mean, elections in Russia are not quite like the, the elections that we see here in Canada. Um, there's a, you, you can kind of predict what the result's going to be, even down to percentage terms, before anybody casts a vote. Uh, so it's all very interesting in that sense. There's no fear of uh, Putin losing an election. Let's put it that way. And the um, second footnote is actually an end bit. And uh, regular listeners at the bridge know what end bits are. They're those extra little pieces of information that, uh, you know, I uh, collect during the week and uh, use on occasion during the, during the bridge as something additional to think about, consider. This one's actually directly related to the Ukraine story. Um, and it's out of uh, the New York Times. Just uh, over the weekend, uh, Valeria Safronova uh, wrote this piece, um, and I'll you know I'll read from it here. As Russian high school students return to classes after the summer break, just as they are here in Canada, right on this day and earlier last week for for some students, but nevertheless, in Russian, in Russia, as high school students return to classes they were expected to receive a heavily revised history textbook that claims that Ukraine is an ultra-nationalist state where opposition is forbidden and that the United States is the main beneficiary of the Ukrainian conflict. The rewritten version of the History of Russia, 1945 to the beginning of the 21st century, is a textbook for 16- and 17-year-old students. It was first unveiled at the beginning of August. The book follows a singular and standardized version of history approved by the highest echelons of power in Russia, and it appears to be the latest push in the Kremlin's youth-targeted propaganda campaign to justify its full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Well, there you go. uh, We're seeing how... The school system is being fiddled with in a a number of different places around the world, including in some parts of Canada. But that's the way it's being fiddled with in Russia right now, trying to get young people on side with Putin's reasons for invading Ukraine and thrusting that country into what has been a prolonged war with extreme casualties on both sides but him having to explain why all these young Russians are coming home dead. The lucky ones come home. Most are left on the battlefield. All right. Uh, Enough on all that. Uh, Time to wrap it up. And with a reminder, the week ahead starts tomorrow. With Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth, Bruce will be by. Thursday is your turn on The Random Ranter. Get your cards and letters in. The, um, uh, email is the mansbridgepodcast podcast at gmail.com. The mansbridge podcast at gmail.com. Happy to hear from you. Um, uh, Friday is good talk with Chantel and Bruce. Lots to talk about there is the conservatives meeting convention this weekend. And just a quick, uh, look ahead to next week on Monday, the latest of the Butts Moore conversations, or the Moore Butts conversations, as some call it, um, and we've got a great topic for next Monday with the uh, with the two of them, the former Liberal top advisor to uh, Justin Trudeau, and uh, one of the former top advisors and cabinet ministers to Stephen Harper, James Moore. So Gerald Butts, James Moore, their conversation next Monday. All right, that's it for this day. I'm Peter Mansbridge. So great to be back with you. Hope you enjoyed the uh, opening shot for this fourth season of The Bridge. We'll talk to you again in 24 hours.